Hello, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, home to NARC Troopers. If you like today's episode, check me out at narctroopers.com, where you'll find about, oh, I don't know, 225 different podcasts on my podcast channel. There, I have a YouTube channel. I have... Um, some articles from medium.com, probably almost 250 of those. Um, and I've just got a bunch of other goodies too, Instagram and stuff like that, uh, even TikTok. <laughs> so look for NARC Troopers. Um, I want to tell everybody, um, uh, sorry I missed a week. I try to put new content out every week. Today is the first part of June and I moved and that was the reason I have just been really really busy because I moved I didn't move far I moved um, like 30 um, miles from where I lived before but I got a job transfer so now here I am and I'm living all coastal on the beach not like a snowflake more like a flurry <laughs> okay uh, seriously let's get to business today we're going to talk about a a serious topic so um, let's let's dive in object constancy and whole object relations it's the root of all narcissistic personality disorders so how can a person with NPD treat you with such loving care for months and years or even decades then suddenly out of the blue just treat you with such hatred and contempt you know you've done absolutely nothing to invite their abrupt change it is a humiliating confusing dehumanizing extinction level experience you have been cast out of the garden without explanation you are banished from the shared fantasy kingdom and when you hit the ground with a thunderous crash, it is, it is disorienting and it's surrealistic the moment that you survey the ugly lack of color in this thing called reality. The dream is over, as you soon began to realize, when you wake from this slumber that kept you away for so long, like you were in a coma or something. You know, how, how could they, um, how could they, be able to do something so nonsensical and why why would they be so cruel why the change it doesn't make sense uh, and we're assuming that your narcissist is not one of the raging lunatic types that's really more psychopathic than uh, narcissistic sometimes they're a nice little hybrid you know you can get a, a narcissistic psychopath or a psychopathic narcissist but um, I'm talking about the, the, the covert narcissist, the vulnerable, shy covert who never shows their temper. They never show any shame or envy or contempt or any of that. They're all just um, rainbows and puppies and sprinkles and hugs and kisses. And it's just, you know, that kind of narcissist. Um, you know, they... Um, they when I when I reference the change I'm assuming you're not dealing with the ones that are um, threatening and physical and raging and all of that because I really think 
that fundamentally narcissism really is more about the covert types uh, rather than the overt. And I, and I have heard other people say this, and I agree with them, that an overt uh, narcissist is really more of a psychopath. So I, I, I think I'm going to um, claim that <laughs> idea because it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Okay, back to what we're talking about. It is the narcissistic cycle of idealize, devalue, and discard. That is what makes them do all this crazy, like, ta-da, now you're going to want to take the mask off and show you the real me. You know, it's the holy grail of pathological narcissism, this, this cycle, and so it is, and so it always will be. The, the cycles come back to how the narcissist is hardwired, vacant inside, and physiologically, developmentally impaired with brain disorders that can actually be seen on a brain scan. Mm -hmm. They are not like a neurotypical person. They are alien, damaged, hollow, impaired, and incapable of being anything else ever. No matter how many times, no matter how many, how many times that there's repetition compulsion that demands that they, you know, repeat themselves over and over these cycles of abuse, it's never going to stop. Um, they just keep doing it because they don't remember. A narcissist has something called discontinuous memory. Discontinuous memory. Um, the instant they walk out the door, they forget everything about you and about the two of you and your life together. They cannot attach. That's why they can just erase you. They can't attach in the first place um, because they have no continuous memory. You know, which comes first, the, the chicken or the egg? Do they not have continuous memory because they, they can't attach? Or is the fact that they don't have continuous memory the explanation for why they don't have healthy attachment styles. I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows, but I guess it really doesn't matter. They can't attach because um, of what they are. They're a narcissist and they um, fill in the gaps of their memory, you know, all the gaps and the holes with these fantastical confabulations that never happened. And they do this as they disremember, disremember the things that actually did occur. So it's all messed up. The, the narcissist has a memory that is really, really um, uh, not okay. And all of this brings us to a couple of other significant features of malignant narcissism. Object inconstancy and a lack of whole object relations. See those empty circles in the... Uh, mesotemporal lobes. Have you ever seen those pictures? That's where emotional memory is stored and people who suffer from cluster B personality disorders just can't do it. They are impaired in their ability to remember what previous experiences felt like. Now let's stop and think about this guys um, and girls and others. Um, let's think about this. What does it mean um, when it says that um, 
they don't remember what things feel like. They may remember going to um, a steakhouse with you on your anniversary and what they had for dinner and maybe what you ordered and how maybe somebody spilled a glass of wine or something. They remember those things. But when you were sitting close and snuggling with them and you remember what it felt like to hold their hand and the emotional content of that moment sticks with you like a snapshot photograph. I mean, you internalize that. You can almost just summon it. It's like, my gosh, you know, it's so real. The emotional connection, the way that they made you feel, the way that you the way you allowed yourself to feel by being close to them, that is imprinted on a very deep and soulful level with you. It's it, That is intimacy, something that they're incapable of. And um, they can't do it, you know. They are impaired in their ability to remember what things feel like. And so that's, if they can't remember what things felt like, emotionally we're talking about emotional connection that they really don't have they're just faking it in the first place then you have a problem that is why they have trouble learning from their mistakes and it's also why each and every time they fall in love they think that they have found the one who's going to save them and that they've never felt that before with anybody else previously when they did feel that they felt exactly that numerous times but as soon as it's done as soon as they're finished with it and they've tossed it into the garbage can they erase it like it never happened and they don't remember ever feeling that way before they don't remember remember the the tender lovey-dovey moments or any of that they don't remember being infatuated with you ever um to them you just don't exist so uh, they can't remember ever being so in love before in their whole life. And uh, so their maladaptive relationship pattern continues. People with NPD have abnormal brains. And no matter how hard they try or how hard you try or how hard anybody else tries, it cannot be fixed or repaired. And they will never, ever feel what regular neurotypical people feel. They don't experience emotions the way you do. They don't even possess, some of them are not even intact. They don't even fire off um, in their brains correctly. But in addition to a damaged non-functioning brain, there are other markers that a narcissist has that sets them apart from everyone else. Um, narcissists don't process the capacity for object constancy uh, and this is an important developmental part of becoming a full-fledged adult human uh, is that you you know you get, that you're able to do this when when the devalue and discard phases of narcissistic abuse happen they feel such contempt for you that they have no problem treating you with such cold indifference and cruel loathing, right? You can't believe what you're seeing. This is coming from the kind of narcissist that's always been so sweet and polite and helpful and kind and adorable and loving and cuddly and all of that. This person, cold as ice, doesn't have any feelings for you whatsoever except just wishing that you would die.
object constancy is the explanation for why that is. Object constancy itself is the ability to retain a bond with another person, even if you find yourself upset, angry, disappointed by their actions. This particular cognitive skill develops around the age two or three years of age, and a narcissist during this time period usually suffered some interruption to healthy development, maybe in a number of ways of critical areas needed for building a healthy human, and this is only one of them. That, that they didn't develop correctly. The narcissist can only see people as good or bad. The ones um, are the, the, the good ones are the ones that provide the fuel and forms of affection, adoration, attention, adulation. The new fresh objects of their infatuation, which add up to nothing more than a sixth grade crush in terms of true connection or intimacy, you know, that's what that is. It's like a, maybe not even sixth grade, I try fifth grade, more like a fifth grade crush uh, is about the level of understanding of the emotional content of of an interaction with a narcissist, that's about as mature as their ability to feel emotion goes. It's just infatuation. It's like puppy love or something. Um, so this, the, the, um, the fresh new objects of their infatuation, which adds up to nothing more than, than this and everything, um, proves that they have no ability to really be intimate. Um, or mature in the way that their feelings are experienced. That phase, it just doesn't last. And sooner or later, the narcissist moves on to fresher fuel or supply because they got to keep it going. They got to keep it going and it gets stale. Bad people are the ones who fall from grace when the shared fantasy bubble begins to burst. They are then devalued and ultimately discarded. It could take months, years, or even decades to cycle through these stages, depending on the quality of residual benefits and personality traits to be co-opted and absorbed by the narcissist. Uh, they just take these pieces and claim them for themselves. Um, or if there's an abundance of money, connections, networking, unboundaried sex, um, and other benefits, the narcissist may stick around for quite a while. You know, why not? They got a good deal. Um, so good and bad have no moral implications to the narcissist because narcissists are by their very nature immoral. In fact, they are also amoral without morals. It's not like they just have bad morals. They don't have any morals. They don't even understand the idea of what that means. As far as a construct, something to live by, a moral compass, they don't have one. They don't have one. I know that for me, in my uh, marriage, my husband had done something unforgivably horrible, um, probably about three and a half years before he actually left. And for those last three and a half years, you know, I struggled to get past what he did. Most people would have left. I stayed for my own unhealthy reasons and um, and tried very hard to get on the other side of it, to 
to say, okay, this is the fresh start. This is a do-over. This is a mulligan. This is a, you know, we're, we're going to go tabla rosa and just blank slate and start fresh. And I struggled with that because I had resentment, bitterness, lack of trust, lack of respect, but I still loved him. The things that I felt that were animosity or resentment for what he had done were because of how much he injured not just me, but the whole family suffered horrific trauma because of him. And because of what he did, he never really acknowledged the magnitude of his actions. Of course he didn't. He's a narcissist. But, um, but, but on we moved together as a married couple. Uh, this was, this happened, I don't know, thir maybe 13 years or so. We had been married when this thing, this thing that he did happened. But I, I'm bringing this up because when I reflect back on that, he could not understand how I could be so angry and have such um, resentment about what he had done and still love him. Because in his mind, either I hate him or I love him. And there were times when I said, sometimes I just hate you. I just hate, hate you for what you did and for what it's done to the family. And, and I didn't feel it was necessary to say, but you're my husband and I also still love you. And he couldn't understand how I could do both, but I could do both. I did love him and I did hate him sometimes for what he had done. <coughs> it was horrible. So in his mind, it's one or the other. You can't do both. So he just assumed when I said, I really hate you sometimes, that that meant I'm hated. Um, you know, and he started shopping around for my replacement pretty shortly thereafter because I think he felt like um, she hates me because of what I did. And so now I've got to find some new fresh supply who idealizes me and loves me and unconditionally and who thinks I can do no wrong. Uh, I need to find that person. So I hope that kind of makes the point about the object relations. They're either white or black, good or bad, yes or no. They can't be both at the same time. And as we all know, life is both at the same time. Um, so, you know, good and bad, what, what were we saying? Um, good and bad have no moral, moral implications to the narcissist, right? They, they paint you white or they paint you black. There is no gray or blurred lines. You're either a devoted acolyte who supports their false persona or, or you are a threat and an enemy who fills them with contempt and hatred for you. Those are the only two choices. That's it. That's what you got. There's no middle ground. According to psychological research, object constancy is the ability to believe that a relationship is stable, hopeful, and intact despite the presence of setbacks, conflict, disagreements, or other things that, you know, people are betrayed, people cheat, uh, people have horrible things that happen, but they stay together and they work on it and a lot of the times they get past it, sometimes they don't. 
People who lack this ability might experience extreme anxiety and abandonment issues. Narcissists have avoidant attachment styles and are incapable of attaching or bonding to anyone. They may, and you know, the most mind-blowing part of that is the covert narcissist, the one that's so sweet and kind and helpful and devoted to you. That one, it's all an act. They're, they even believe it themselves. I, I don't think that they're thinking, I've got to keep up this song and dance and wear this mask because I'm really blah, blah, blah inside. They, they gaslight themselves and they believe their own BS. They have themselves believing that you're the coolest thing since sliced bread, right? Um, so, yeah, they do that. Um, but in reality, is there really any real attachment? No, there isn't. Not with the, the narcissist cannot um, actually bond with anyone. This would require empathy and it would require continuous memory and it would require accountability and intimacy and a lot of things that, that you know, the narcissist, it's just not possible for them to have this. If you have NPD, you have a, a pathological illness and it prevents you from having that. Um, when I was with my husband, um, I managed to be shrouded in some kind of deniability cloak. <laughs> I've never read that anywhere else. I think I made that up. I'm going to uh, lay claim to it. Yes, I wore a deniability cloak instead of invisibility cloak. Get it? Yeah. Um, and I knew there was something wrong with him, obviously. I knew there was something wrong with him the first time I met him. I saw all the red flags. I had the intuitive gut feeling that this was something larger than life in the best and in the worst of ways. And, um, and through it all, I defended his indefensible behavior, made excuses for the things he did, and walked behind him repairing, fixing, mending, and doing all damage control for the series of impulsive, thoughtless mistakes that he continued to make. I'm not kidding, like every job he had when after I met him, uh, I can think of like four or five jobs in a row. Each one of them ended badly with them asking him to resign or be fired. And I would swoop in and, um, you know, try to set something else up, pull some strings and make some introductions you know, write some, help him write some letters, whatever, and come to the rescue. Um, but he just, you know, I mean, they knew that there was something wrong with him. I really knew, but, you know, and, and then they're just, they keep making the mistakes and you keep just being there. <laughs> That's a whole nother subject for another podcast. As long as I saw him as my savior, my proxy parent, because of that whole mutual parentification thing going on, which is, a, by the way, a primary marker of these kinds of pairings. I saw him as my flawless partner and the man I had always dreamed of. He was able to, to take the fuel I provided that kept him alive like a life-saving transfusion. So we were both getting what we needed 
out of this relationship. But finally, his betrayals went too far, and I couldn't hide the anger and hurt and fear and revulsion that I felt about this thing that I told you about that he did. Um, but I didn't leave. A healthy person would have left. Uh, and I want to talk about that real quickly. I think a lot of times it's hard to understand why people stay. Um, you know, and it, I didn't just stay to remind him how much I hated what he did. I stayed because of my own fragmented attachment styles. I stayed because of my own abandonment issues. I stayed because of my own dependent personality disorder, which is very, you know, uh, very much like codependency. Um, I stayed for those reasons because I, I couldn't do anything else. It really didn't feel like a choice. Um, so finally, when things went too far and I couldn't do this um, anymore, you know, I stayed and reminded him how much I hated what he did, but, you know, he could never really acknowledge any kind of, of any, anything. He just withered in my disappointment and resentment. The fuel lines just dried up. The teat from which the mother's milk so abundantly flowed just shriveled up. Don't you love that, um, imagery there? Yeah. I, I love to talk about <laughs> how I felt like, um, that, uh, I provided the teat that he, uh, got fat off of for almost two decades. Right. Um, and because it just so abundantly flowed there for so long until it just went too far and then it just kind of shriveled up. And so he was starving as all narcissists do. And without the fuel, of affection, the fuel of adoration, of attention, and of course the teat, <laughs> um, he began looking for my replacement. And in the shape of really anyone new that was fresh and innocent, that he could pull the wool over their eyes because they're unaware of what was going to follow. So in his eyes, I had betrayed him. Do you see that? In his eyes, I broke the covenant. In his eyes, I abandoned him. He believed that he had been the perfect husband and that I was contemptible for withholding the flow of fuel and, that he needed to survive. The, the life-sustaining teat that I withdrew, uh, that I was evil for doing that. Like I wanted to hurt him. Like I wanted him to die. As you know, it's just crazy. But I was there, loyal and devoted, fighting and to slowly forgive the unforgivable, fighting to create a fresh start and this new beginning. And I never gave up. Part of it was addiction to the trauma cycles that bound us. You hear people talk about trauma bonds, trauma bonds. Yeah, that's real. And yes, that was part of the reason I stayed. Part was my own things I just mentioned earlier, my dependency, abandonment, and attachment issues. And I think I also have some borderline traits for sure. I'm just my own stew of hot mess. And so I stayed. Uh, and, you know, it, to me, that was 
unconditional organic love, but you know it really wasn't enough. Narcissists don't understand love. They don't know what it is. And they don't feel it. They can't feel it. So how could they truly experience it or give it to you? They are just acting apart and believing their own magical thinking. Love is just a word you say, an abstract concept. Because of a lack of object constancy, I became 100% bad. Anything we had shared or experienced or any happy memory or good qualities or wonderful yummy feelings that we had, uh, when he once thought, you know, that, you know, he had idealized me, they just evaporated into thin air, just evaporated, poof. He could not, um, he could not form whole object relations because that childhood development stage was interrupted and he was never able to achieve it by internalizing the concept. What is meant by whole object relations? Again, this is the ability to form integrated, realistic, and relatively stable in images of both oneself and of other people that simultaneously includes both liked and disliked aspects and also strengths and flaws both together, all mixed up together. It's a whole mixed bag. The narcissist is not whole or integrated or realistic or stable. Is that a revelation? <laughs> and they cannot perceive others as complex layers of good and bad all at the same time either. Everyone to them is either, you know, good or bad. They And they are either infatuated, never really in love, but infatuated, or they hate you with every fiber of their being and are repulsed by just your very existence. And that can change on a dime. In the weeks and months before the discard, I could feel that things were changing and the intermittent cycles of abuse increased. Discount, I discounted them and minimized them because when you have merger and fusion happening, which is, is a thing y'all should read about, Dr. Sam Vaknin talks about merger and fusion. Uh, when you've done this with a disordered person and you've become enmeshed and entrained, those are also two words you'll need to know, enmeshed and entrained, you cannot acknowledge that there's abuse going on. It is a blind spot and you simply cannot accept it. Um, there were acts of kindness and closeness and cuddling and the everyday things that make a marriage. Uh, that make a marriage a source of peace and comfort and all of that, I chose to focus on all of those things. When the criticisms and mocking and cruel picking, picking me apart occurred, I dismissed them and carried on with our comfortable routines that, that made things seem okay and acted like anesthesia. In the end, the narcissist is incapable of doing anything else except following their cycle of abuse infatuation, idealization, followed by devaluation, and then discard and replacement. They cannot do or be anything else. They are single-minded and programmed to try to be a real human. Um, you know, they all know they are different 
and not like everybody else, but they don't understand why. The only way to do that is to merge and fuse and to, um, to go through the steps and then throw you away so they can individuate and become real. That's all part of the narcissistic cycle. And that's what that's the end goal. That's the end game. They they become enmeshed with you. And then when they dispose of you, that allows them to individuate. Although it never works. Doesn't stick. Doesn't happen that way. But that is their quest. And they will always fail because they will always try again and again and because they have no emotional memory of the past. And isn't that the, just the most horrific, abysmal part of this whole thing for those of us who have loved someone with this disorder is that when they do throw you in the trash can, um, it's like they don't remember anything. You have this whole history, maybe a whole life, children, home, jobs, life, vacations, like you have a whole life with this person and they don't remember any of it. You know, being erased like that is just, that's the part that makes it almost just impossible to recover from these relationships because on an existential what level you have been annihilated you've been torpedoed you've been murdered you have been just totally destroyed so what do, what do i want to say to end this um their quest will always fail but they keep trying because they have no emotional memory of the past they don't remember that they tried and failed with you. They don't remember how you made them feel in the beginning. In the process, you will be the all good person for a while and then you will be the all bad person and, and you must be punished and there is no other ending. You know, I, I really think you just won't believe this. Or you can't believe it until it happens to you. And I pray that it never does happen to you. And if you're listening to this because it's already happened to you, my heart goes out to you because I know how you suffer and how you struggle and how hard it is to try to figure out what to do next in the aftermath of, of narcissistic abuse. All right, guys, I will be back with you soon. Uh, I've got to finish out a week at school in a place I'm not even in the same city anymore. I've got some long commutes this week. It's going to be rough. But um, I'll be back with you just as soon as I can be. And um, hopefully no more gaps in my recordings. So my thoughts are always with you. I want everybody to understand this stuff. Oh my gosh, there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there. I want everyone to understand and I want the people who are suffering, who are the people who have been in these partnerships with these people, um, I want them to be okay, to get okay, to get on the other side of this and be able to construct a new self, you know, uh, a 2.0 version that's stronger, faster, better, and, and healthier 
than what you were when you were with them in that shared fantasy. I know fantasy seems so much better than reality, doesn't it? But you can't live there forever. It's like you can't live at Disneyland or Disney World. Why would you want to? Uh, it's not real. At some point, you've got to go back to the real. And that's what we're all tasked to do, is to rejoin the real world and come out of that narcissistic fantasy, that shared fantasy. That's rough. But you know what, everybody? I really believe that we can do it. I do. You know, it's been almost four years for me, and there are still days that kick my butt. I have anxiety. I still wrestle with it, struggle. But, you know, there are other days where I feel strong. I feel capable. I feel wise. I understand this upside down and backwards, in and out, from every direction. I know exactly what happened and why and how to avoid it again. And I feel empowered. I feel reborn. I feel like I am ready to step out into the world and do my magic. <laughs> and then I have a panic attack. <laughs> or... <laughs> You know, some other symptom of something triggers me and, and tells me, hey, you know, this isn't quite over yet. Um, you got to do what you need to do to get all the way free, all the way free. And, and I really believe that knowing, learning, educating ourselves, doing the, taking the time to, to fully, deeply understand this is the most powerful weapon you have. I don't think that I would have survived it at all if I had not really done a deep dive into what this is and um, all that. So, yeah, keep learning and keep working on yourself, and you're, we're going to do this together. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Much love. Bye-bye.